Good morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. I'll be reading Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word and commands to us who believe. Father, I ask for the presence strong presence of your spirit upon our hearts that would cause us to yearn to grasp what's here so that our minds are active. Help me as a teacher teach. Help me be clear. Work in us that which is beautiful in your sight to the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen. Notice verse 6. Here's the command of the Lord to all Christians. Do not be anxious about anything. To which I think God loves His people who read the Bible this way should elicit from us really, Paul? Don't be anxious. Don't have any anxiety Fear of something happening, about anything. There's a lot to be anxious about in life. There's much to, to feel in the pit of our stomach anxiety over what might happen in the next two hours or 20 years. David knew this. Do you remember when King Saul was trying to kill him? He's running for his life. He's hiding in caves. And then he pretends to be a crazy man in Philistine in order to hide out there for a while. Listen to how David prayed while hiding out in one of those caves in Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. 
He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. In other words, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, Saul's men whose tongues are sharp words. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. But they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. David is an example of obeying this command. Flee from the sin of anxiety by turning to him who is near in your cave of life. We're meant to feel this in our own caves of life. And I'm going to pick up there next week. But this morning, I just want to ask a large question first. What in the world does he mean? What does he mean by be Anxious in nothing. Don't worry about anything. So just slowly plow through it then. Does Paul mean for us to become potatoes? Potatoes are utterly unaffected by anxious thoughts. Potatoes do not have stomachs that are tied up in, in knots over the prospect of tomorrow. Does this command mean become utterly emotionless over stuff, over money, over grief over relationships? Does the command to be anxious over nothing, does it mean, therefore, do not take precautions while you're driving 75 miles an hour down the 405 freeway because the thought strikes you that if I get in an accident, I might die? Does the command mean don't save money and plan for school or for retirement? Because what moves you is the thought of, if I get to retirement with nothing but Social Security, I don't want to eat cat food, that's very unwelcome to me, 
Therefore, that anxiety moves me to act or to pay my school bill for my bachelor's or my master's. Is that what it means? Does it mean don't allow the thought of not showing up to work on time? Don't allow that to produce any anxiety in you which would motivate you to get up and be to work on time. Does David's cave prayer that we just heard, God, you, you are the one that my heart takes refuge in. Does that mean that David, therefore, is not to use any wisdom and take any precautions so that he's not killed by King Saul? So the question on the table was, what does he mean by the command? Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry. It's a huge question because if I don't know what he means, I cannot obey it. Especially if I read other texts in the scripture that on the surface seem to contradict it. Let me, let me take another subject other than anxiety for a moment. For instance, David says anger is sin. It, it, it's a work of the flesh. I'm, I'm David. Paul says anger is sin. It's a work of the flesh. And then in Ephesians, of course, he says, be angry. Okay? There are things to be angry about. But watch it. Don't sin in your anger. Mark 3, 5 says, Jesus looked around at them with anger. And he was grieved in his heart. And we know God gets angry. That's why... Jesus went to the cross because there's a pure, righteous wrath or gay anger that God has. Okay, on the anger one, look, without doing it, look, we know that's easily solvable. Okay, without going through any argumentation, the bottom line, simple. There's righteous anger. And there is sinful anger. Okay. Now, with our problem, and with our text, let's feel it. David says, don't be anxious about anything. Did I say David again? Can you please interrupt me? Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Then in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, he says this. There is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Same word. This is the noun. Philippians is the verb. And he says it in a positive way. In other words, he's, what he is saying is, I care what happens. And therefore, I carry an anxiety. He says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, I'm afraid that your thoughts, Corinthians, will be led astray 
from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Different word, stronger word, phobos. I have fear that this would happen that moves me about you. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 3.5, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I couldn't take it anymore, I sent to learn about your faith. For, here it is again, Phobos, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So, so how do those texts of Paul's fit with Philippians 4.6? Do not be anxious about anything. Don't have any sense of fear that X, Y, or Z might happen. In other words, it's important because if you're a mom or a dad and you're sitting at the beach with your toddler and your toddler's down by the shoreline here at El Porto in the Pacific Ocean, you want to know, am I sinning? If Anxiety rises up in me to say, I, I need to act and to protect my child from drowning. I, I want to know, is that sinful? What are you saying, Paul? I need to know, is there a good kind of anxiousness that motivates me to good works and to wise choices? Or is it all just Sin. So let's start. Kind of just see if this makes sense to you. Everyday life sense. Anxiety. What do we say? We, we all use the term. We, somehow you know. It's kind of like love. <laughs> you know, in love. I, don't, I'm just, I just know what it is to be, to be anxious. But we do try to define times love. Let's try to define anxiety. It, it, it seems to to be, when you look at your life, my life, our everyday lives, it seems to be that there's a desire, deep desire for something which is accompanied by a fear of the consequences if you don't have that something. My desire driving down the freeway is to get home safely. Therefore, what am I saying? Well, the other option is I don't and I die. There, there's a fear of that consequence. So, for instance, if come September, I do not get a particular birthday gift from my wife, I don't have any anxiety about it because I have zero fear of the consequences of not getting gift X. Y or Z. No anxiety. But as a husband, I know what it is to experience the emotion of anxiety when my wife doesn't come home when she was supposed to and doesn't call or text and doesn't respond to my call or text. And then another 30 minutes go by and my anxiety grows why? Because the thought floods through my mind. What's happening? I don't know. Is it a car accident? And I do fear the consequences of what the car accident might mean. 
I do not welcome that. And thus, anxiety. Paul has anxiety for all the churches because he fears the consequences of what it would mean if they turn away from the Lord, from the gospel. Paul does not want that to happen, and thus his anxiety for all the churches. That, that's anxiety, and it? Something in the future, 10 minutes ahead of time, 40 years ahead of time. Something in the future that we really don't want to experience. It's too unpleasant. Therefore, I experience anxiety. Okay. Now let's go back to the question. How do we square Paul's anxiety for all the churches, which is a positive thing, with his command, do not be anxious about anything. Now, let me just start to try to illustrate this with an assumption. I assume that we, we, we all agree, right, that grief, the loss of a child, producing grief in parents, that's appropriate. It's not sinful. Sound, sound fair? Okay. All right. So it's also appropriate, therefore, that while you're walking your three-year-old up here on the cliffs of Palace Verdes, that you sense this emotion called a, a anxiety of the child falling off because that's really unwelcome to you. And the prospects of going, experiencing that, and for your child, the whole thing rises up, produces an anxiety that moves you to take precautions on how you walk on the cliff. Now, if you're a Bible person, see, it is important to ask this question. We need to decipher what kinds of anxieties are appropriate and which kind of anxiety are we commanded to resist? And the answer to that question is not, look, anxiety is it's just natural to be human, therefore don't worry about it. There are all kinds of things that are natural for us sinful human beings that we're commanded to not do. So that's not the answer. So I'm going to continue to try to unfold this. Here's the bottom line when I'm arguing. There is Good anxiety, just like there's good anger. And there is sinful anxiety, just like there is sinful anger. Now remember, this is the Apostle Paul. Let's kind of feel it with him as a fellow brother in the Lord. He's the one who wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God... He causes everything, all things, to work together for good to those who love Him. You believe that, Paul? 
then why are you anxious about what might happen to the churches? And so that's the question I want to get at. How is that appropriate to believe Romans 8.28 and to have an appropriate anxiety of the future? Consequences. To get at that in our experience, I'm going to start first with the very foundation of everything. And that's God. Contemplate Him. God is revealed as, and any rational being thinking about it, without beginning, without end, the power of being in Himself, and thus He is perfectly at peace, perfectly contented, perfectly happy. I'm just going to assume you're with me so far and you believe that about the one true God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Okay. Then you open the scripture and you see God grieving. How can that be? He, in response to things in his creation, gets or expresses anger. How does that make any sense? Genesis 6, 6 says, And the Lord, Yahweh, regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Okay. Now, with God the Son, and yes, this includes his humanity now, his human soul, but Jesus, he, he stood over Jerusalem in that last trip there, and he wept. Why? What's your problem? You've been saying all along, you know the Scriptures, and you know that your people as a whole will reject you. You're going to Jerusalem to be killed. You told your apostles this. Nevertheless, he cried, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, how often that you would receive like a chick to a hen. And of course, Jesus looked around at them with anger and he was grieved in his heart. And Paul says about God, the Holy Spirit, in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed. Are you God or are you not God? How, how can you experience grief over something I do or anger? Okay, you get the feel? Even though God is sovereign over all that happens, which is absolutely true, there is nothing that has happened or is happening or could ever happen that He does not fully know beforehand and expect 
and yet God can grieve. He can get angry. He could weep. And if we can get at how God can experience those emotions, it may help us grasp Paul's command for us. Rejoice, what he said right before this in Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Do not be anxious about anything. Trust Romans 8.28 into God's sovereign hands. And go ahead and have good anxiety over the churches. And over the prospect of that toddler drowning. That's good. So, the answer to getting how God can do that is not, well, God must not be omniscient, so he got shocked when X, Y, and Z happened with his human creatures, and thus he responds like we respond. It's not the answer. He is omniscient. He ordains all that is, actually. And therefore, there is in a sense in which nothing ultimately frustrates God's sovereign will. And therefore, there's a sense, there's a sense in which it is impossible for God to be anxious. There's a sense in which it's impossible for God to grieve. There's a sense in which it's impossible for God to be angry then how do we account for all the texts that show that God emotes anger, grief, regret? The answer is that God is infinitely more complex than we can imagine. Now, doesn't mean don't contemplate it. I'm just, here's where I have settled on that issue. God can evidently grieve over sin in a narrow lensed view. That while he's doing it, he's complex enough to say, I see sin narrowly without all the other larger realities that I, who God have ordained. And in doing that, he can hate it. He sees sin, evil acts, death, narrowly, in the sense of seeing them just in and of themselves for what they are. He sees Adam's sin in the garden. He sees Joe LeMay's sin as ugly. As spurning His glory. Because Adam's and our sin is meant. Is evil. He sees that for what it is. And thus, in the isolation of viewing our sin that way, he hates it. He's angry. He grieves. Now, to illustrate that, the most clear example 
is the cross of Jesus. Jesus can say that his death must happen. And at the same time say, Woe unto Judas by whom it happens. Was Judas's betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, was that sin? A, re a rebuffing of no faith, trust in God? Was the Sanhedrin's railroading Jesus all through the night? Sin? Was Pilate's wishy-washy politics sin that put Jesus on the cross? The answer is simply yes. Does God hate those sins, yes. Does he grieve over those sins? Yes. Is Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28 true? When they prayed, For truly in this city, Lord, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, gathered together in order to do sin. In order to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. So Judas, Sanhedrin, Pilate, Herod, they meant it for evil. And therefore, I, God, hate that sin. He is righteously angered. Angered over it. And grieves because of it. But God is not frustrated. He is not an unhappy God. Because he has another lens that he sees all things through. And this other lens allows him to see each ugly, sinful piece of the puzzle. Along with all these beautiful pieces of a puzzle. And as they are put together on the table of God... There's this one massive picture that He has ordained in creation and redemption, which all the pieces put together are the display of the glory of God through His Son, Jesus Christ, forever. He has the capacity to see through two lenses. And thus he assures everyone who loves the Lord Jesus of Romans 8, 28. Every piece, every grieving piece, 
every tragic piece, every beautiful piece, all things are being put together in a puzzle for the good of those whom he's called to himself. Of all who love him forever in glory. Does that make some sense? Okay, now let's go back to us. If God has the capacity to view through two distinct lenses, it's very complex to us, then maybe we creatures who are created in his image might have the capacity to cry and rejoice at the same time. And if so, that would help us grasp how Paul could say, I have fear. I have an anxiety that such and such might happen. I don't want it to happen. And at the same time say, Believer, for you and for me, Paul, let's rejoice in the Lord always. And do not be anxious or fearful about anything. Maybe then we can understand that Paul can say that because he means rejoice in the Lord always and don't be anxious about anything from one lens that we look through. And he means I have anxiety that my child not drown or that the churches continue in the faith from another point of view. One, the narrow lens. The other, the wide angle, all-encompassing broad view of God's sovereign purposes and salvation for David and for all the saints. Paul could see sin. He could see unbelief. He could see the false teachers. He could see a child in danger of drowning on the shore's edge all from the narrow point of view. And it is right for him to see it and to say, I hate that. I I, I want to do what I can do by God's grace to stop the false teachers. Stop the unbelief. To prevent the child from drowning. It's right from that lens to grieve over death and cancer and sin and evil. But if Paul only remained with that narrow view of looking at life, then it would be impossible for him to rejoice always in the Lord and to obey the command, do not be anxious about anything. That's a command, here's the point. This command in Philippians 4.6 is a command for the wide-angled lens view of your life. We're going to come back there next week. Let me just, then next, whatever, eight, ten minutes. 
Just try to close to tie this together, what I'm saying, on this week before we come to say, okay, David, teach us how to do this next week. Okay. What I mean is this. There is a good or place for, for good anxiety. And there is anxiety that is sinful. Okay. The good anxiety is sitting at the beach. And this is real life. I've experienced this many times with six kids at the ocean. I'm so I can't concentrate right now. I got I got to move. If you want, bring your chair, but I got to take my chair and I'm going down to the water's edge right now while my four-year-old is having a ball, but I'm just too nervous and too anxious over it. So I'm going to, I'm moving over there. You can come with me. I just need that anxiety to totally focus on keeping my kid alive. It's appropriate. It's good. Or let me use another illustration, same thing of good anxiety. Take a, take a missionary who depends on the financial support of hundreds of individual Christians back here in the States. He's been behind the Islamic block for 10 years. And then over the last number of months, something happened with all of his support just drastically decreased by regular donors. And we knew from God's angle because evidently so many of them at the same time decided we want to go to Disneyland and Disney World a lot more. Oh, we have to have the brand spanking new car which brought us a monthly payment we did not have before. And we got to figure out where the finances are coming from. And too many of them at the same time made that decision. And there's the missionary. He sees the numbers. And he's struck. Anxiety. Because if those numbers continue, he's going to have to abandon the mission field. That is unwelcome to him. Those consequences. And thus, the anxiety causes him to make his needs known. And it's possible that even having done that, nothing changes and he has to leave the ministry. There's a good anxiety, the narrow lens that causes the missionary to respond and make his needs known in order that he would not leave the mission field. But then there is the wide-lensed view, which means he also then has to sit back and say, I've done what I know to do. And I've prayed and still pray over it. But ultimately, Lord, you have never lost sovereign control over the situation. And I rejoice in you. Paul knows that destruction can happen to his churches. And that prospect is grievous to him and it causes him to act. And that is not sinful. It's not wrong. Sickness, cancer, 
early death, your children not walking with the Lord Jesus are all grievous and not sinful in and of themselves. In other words, to contemplate the possibility of un- unwelcome, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't choose that. I don't want that. that. That experience that may lay in your future is not necessarily wrong. From it often comes wisdom to act. But nevertheless, Paul also sees from another perspective. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And in that sense, he rests. And he doesn't allow anxiety to totally sap all the ability to rejoice in the Lord always while crying. And in the midst of it all, he finds peace. Peace in the midst of the storms, in the midst of the cave. And in that sense, he's not anxious. And that's where we're going to go there next week. As we'll see in that wide-angle lens that the Lord will always hold us fast because our Jesus He loves us so. He will hold us fast. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have gone to the cross to secure for us who believe an eternal home. And thus there is freedom from anxieties. Sinful anxieties. And there's freedom for wisdom producing anxiousness. Continue to teach us in our own individual lives and to know which is which to the glory of your holy name as we find our protection and refuge always and ultimately in you.